This week, I was, uh, I read online a statement that was uh, posted by a friend. Simple little statement. One line little statement. And it, it really shook me to the core because it's a very common statement, but just the way it was written with no flash, and it's troubled me. And it's got me thinking all week. And here's what the person wrote. Here's what they wrote. I just want to be on fire for the Lord again. That's what they wrote. I just want to be on fire for the Lord again. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Fickle human beings, that's what we are. Dust and ash. Daily riding up and down what I call an emotional roller coaster. Every part of our lives, someday we're doing great. We're on the top of the world. And then the next minute, the next second, we can come crashing down. Actually, last week, after I was done with the talking about the ecosystem, somebody said that God's design is so great. It really is so great, but I fail at it so miserably. Why does it seem like the more we want to please God or to have our lives go the right way, Reality ends up going the other direction. <laughs> Instead of joy and peace ruling our homes, there sure seems to be a lot of tired, angry, exhausted people stumbling around. Can you relate to Bilbo Baggins' quote now? It's, he describes life. He says, I feel thin, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. Didn't Jesus promise abundance? Yet most of us experience lack. Don't, honestly, don't see, people seem tired these days? How, how often? I probably said I feel tired about 17 times last week. Do you ever feel like George Bailey where he's standing over the bridge and he looks down on that icy cold water? Maybe I should jump. And then he says, but Clarence, I want to live again. That's what I want. I want to live again to thrive. No longer feeling like I'm hanging by a thread. I want to wake up where I'm really excited about facing a new day instead of dreading it. Well, guess what? You may think me crazy, but when we feel this way, when we feel this way that, man, I just want to be on fire for the Lord again, I think God has us right where He wants us. I really do. Listen to this quote by Miles Stanford. Failure where self is concerned in our Christian faith life and service, is allowed and often engineered by God in order to com turn us completely from ourselves unto His source for our life. Listen to that again. Failure, where self is concerned in our Christian life and service, is allowed and often engineered by God in order to turn us completely from ourselves unto His source for our life again. Well, what is that source? I want that source. I want that. Well, if we look in Titus 2, we already read it, but we're going to read it again. We're going to find it. Titus 2, 11 through 14. This is where we find the source. This is the source. And the title for this next lesson is Thriving. Because when I, when I touch into or I, I tap into that source and it comes into my life, I begin to be alive again. Here's what it says, verse 11. Titus chapter 2, just 
four verses, 11, 12, 13, 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives as present age. Verse 12 is thriving, living a life where I'm not condemned to my worldly passions and slave to them. I'm self-controlled. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous. The idea of zeal is bubbling out, bubbling, bubbling out of us. Zealous for good works. Good works bubbling out of us. Title is Thriving. Let's quickly walk through where we've been in our Titus study the first week, which was already four weeks ago. God called us out from the world, and we are called the church. And so we've used the metaphor of those on the island. The island is the church, the called out ones from the world. Put on this island called the church. Week two, to help organize and keep this island from becoming Lord of the Flies, chaos, God has given to us church leaders called elders. And the idea is to help the church be the kind of people God wants us to be. Week three, we said not everyone on the island is an islander. There are some pirates who have disguised themselves to steal from others, serving their own selfish desires. Jesus calls them hypocrites. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Last week we discussed the ecosystem, how it's supposed to work together. He's given us roles, both older men and older women and younger men and younger women, and as we fulfill those roles, harmony comes. And today we're going to talk about the source that allows us to fulfill those roles, and that source we see in verse 11 is the grace of God. It's grace. Grace is the source. As, I, as I've been studying Titus, and I've told you this before, Titus was living on the island of Crete, and so are the people that he was uh, supposed to minister to were living on the island of Crete. If you study about Crete, it's an amazing island. I've talked about it's beautiful. It's considered one of the most beautiful in all of Europe, out in the Mediterranean. It has pristine beaches, scenic mountain passage, beautiful cutout gorges and a rock. But even though this island is surrounded by salt water, undrinkable salt water, if you go inland, it has what I just found out through some of my study, all kind of waterfalls and spring-fed rivers and just clean water in abundance. There's one, one of the most famous waterfalls. Is, let me describe it for you. It's called the Rictus Waterfall. It says a 50-foot-high waterfall of Rictus can be discovered in eastern Crete near the town of Shisha. The path to this waterfall first starts at a traditional village. You take a three-hour or five-kilometer walk to these, this gorge. Uh, go to the next, the next, that slide. You first go to this gorge where the water collects and it feeds into the next slide, which is the waterfall of um, Rictus. And it says, there you can drink straight from the abundance of the water. Go to that next slide again. There it is. You can drink there and you can actually picnic under tamarack trees. And it's about 10 degrees cooler. So people will go inland to get cool off in the middle of the summer. And they just say the water is clear as crystal. I want to go there. 
want to go there right now. That'd be so nice. Well, I want to use this waterfall as a metaphor or a picture of the constant, fresh grace of God that's always available. We can always tap into it. God's grace. Defined, God's grace is a source of free-flowing. It's His life that's free-flowing, and it's open to all people. You can get it anytime you want. Defining it, it's the favor of God. God's favor upon you, which brings joy, pleasure, and delight. Joy, pleasure, and delight. I want to thrive like that. I want to have joy, pleasure in my life, and delight. Grace is God's life. And it's free. It's free. Listen to Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come to the waters, the King James says, Ho, oh, hey, listen up. Come to the waters, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat. Matthew 5 said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Filled with what? Grace. God's grace. Free. But some of you might say, but where can I find this grace in my everyday life? I, it's not an actual waterfall. I don't go to a spring and dip in a bottle and drink it and let it come down my chin and fall on my feet in the stony ground. I, where, where's this water? What is this water? Paul says, if we look in verse 11, well, this water, this grace of God has appeared. It has appeared. The word appeared here is... Very interesting because it's only used in two other places in the whole of the New Testament. In both times, this word appeared references to dark clouds that have been covering for a long time, and all of a sudden they start separating in a light. The sun pierces through. That's what that appeared means. So grace is a light that breaks into darkness, the darkness of our heart, the darkness of our lives. When did this specifically happen? It's pretty obvious. If you know Christian music, we've been singing about it all morning. Go to Isaiah chapter 9. Watch how it's written. This is one of the most uh, famous, what's called a messianic prophecy about the coming Savior that we use in Christmas time. And it's, it's the inspiration of one of the most well-known Christmas songs, the Hallelujah Chorus. But look at verse 1, and then we'll read through verse 9. And just let Isaiah's poetry help explain what it means by grace appeared. Isaiah 1, there will be no more gloom. Oh, this is verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In a former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in later times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So this is Israel. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light has appeared. That's the idea. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Well, what is the light? Skip verse 3, 4, and 5 because it talks about you know, warfare and stuff, but the light is, begins in verse 6. What's the light? Well, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Grace appeared in a person. Grace is a person, and grace is given to us through this person. And when we receive grace through this person that is the light that appeared to all people, we receive what's called deliverance or salvation. So when we go back to Titus, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Well, how? How did this person bring salvation? You know the story, but if you don't, let me refresh it really quickly. First of all, this person was God who came in flesh. We call this the incarnation made flesh. God made flesh. The incarnation, quite simply, is God speaking our language. It's how God communicates to us in a way we get it. Oh, I get it. Jesus is God in human form. In fact, verse 13, this is a great verse to memorize if you want to if you're arguing the deity of Christ, it talks about Christ as the great God or our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the title of Jesus Christ is our great God. Just as Isaiah said, he is almighty God. 1 John chapter 1 says Jesus came. That's what John says. He came for three reasons. So we could hear God, see God, and touch God. Jesus came so we could hear God see God, and touch God. He was made manifest. That's the fancy language for saying he was made clear and understandable to human beings. So we can have fellowship with the Father and our joy might be made complete. That's how we thrive, through him. And that's what I want. I crave that. That's why we sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Which leads us to how has this baby brought joy? Well, he died. God died. Jesus died so God's wrath toward us would be stopped in his just anger. Just meaning well-deserved. Would be satisfied. Grace attests to the fact that this cross was God's love in action. It wasn't deserved. We didn't earn it. God's heart was aroused, and he gave it to us as a gift. That's grace. Why did he do this? So that all men could live. He did this so that all men could live. Because of Jesus' death on a cross, all people, regardless of race, gender, economic status, can now thrive. They can come alive again. No longer zombies. Dead in sin. And the way you do that is, A, I admit I deserve the wrath. That cross was mine. Do I, A, admit it? Do I, B, believe that Jesus actually lived and died? Todd DeKrieger believed it. Boy, did he believe it. And then, C, I confess I need it. Without him, I'm, I don't thrive. And so if I admit it, believe, and confess and receive him by faith, God gives me his life. His grace enters me. It fills me, or should I say it like this? He fills me. He lives in me. 
this which appeared is mine. It's amazing. It's amazing to me. But here's what you need to know. Grace, the life of God, is not a one-time shot. It should flow continually in and through your life. But to do that, you need to know how it works. Let me just show you how it works. And this is where I really need you to pay attention because I think this is where we fail. The human heart is weird. It's a, it's a, the best way to describe it, it stores all kinds of mysteries. And inside of it, it doesn't just have four physical chambers. I believe it has four secret spiritual chambers of motivation. I'm going to call these four chambers fear, habit, duty, and love. And you'll understand what I mean by this in a second. These four chambers in a heart, these four chambers affects what we do and what we want, our motivations. Philippians says, to will and to work. Scripture is very clear on how, this, how these four function. And to get it working, there's two approaches that we use. One approach to getting these four storehouses or four chambers working, one approach destroys you, kills you. One approach brings to you joy and peace. The first approach we call the work of law, how, how the law works. You need to listen closely because this is where most of us, this is where most of us come to die under the law and the work of the law. The law destroys because it activates wrong motives. The law teaches us. Here's the goal of the law. The goal of the law is to make, teaches us to, you must be perfect. You are here on this earth to be perfect. So be perfect. In the idea of the laws, God will help you a little along the way. In, in the, the law will actually call that grace. However, Perfection is mostly up to you. You must achieve it through willpower and effort. It's up to you. God will give you grace, but you've got to do it. And so the law, like a ladder, it's a ladder, it begins having a step towards perfection each rung at a time by using, first of all, fear. It starts with fear. Fear says, do this and that, climb this rung, and the next rung, and the next rung, and the next rung, and the next rung, and if you don't, or else. Or else. That's what fear whispers to the heart, or else. Fear is motivated, uses threats. It's all about threats. Take any, did you know it? The law takes an infinite amount of steps to get to heaven. You better not stop climbing or else. Renounce ungodliness, which means stop swearing, stop lusting, stop stealing, stop lying, or else. Stop your worldly passions, or else. So what happens, this leads us into the chamber of habits. If you don't do enough religious things and the right religious things, the or else might happen, so you need to form habits we call moral actions to stop failing, sinning, 
swearing, lusting, and stealing. So the truth of the matter is, fear fuels, ramps up our natural desire for survival, and we think the only way to survive is by doing the right things. So we form habits. So most of us think church and religion is about forming the right actions, what I need to do and not do. That's why Colossians says it like this. When you live under the law, the law teaches you do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. The evangelical church tries to soften this, but it's still the same thing. We developed a bunch of proactive moral habits that we must do. Do your devotions. You better do them. Attend all of our meetings. Whenever the doors are open, you better be there. Do you want to climb that ladder? Stop cursing. Avoid excessive makeup, women. Guys' ties, you wearing them? And whatever you do, ultimately, habit says, do not have fun doing it. No. No, the road to perfection is not meant to be a joyride. It's serious. Because or else is always in the back. It's serious. So then what it does is it teaches us duty. Duty is the application of guilt, which is born from failing the habit. So if you want to stay one of us, you must continue to do these things. So in other words, duty are habits long term. It is the whip and the lash on the back of the religious slacker. And make sure you put on a good face as you climb because you don't want to be judged by others, do you? But you know, there's a lot of people that think they're the gatekeepers of heaven and you got to keep them happy. Don't make them angry. And some of them are in here. You don't want them mad at you. Can you believe what they did? Huh. Can you believe what they watch? You know what they've been drinking? You see what they wear? Oh, they can't be saved if they're doing that. And ultimately, if you are not perfect in every way, if you're not perfect in every way, the law keeps the final punishment reserved as leverage. What is the final punishment? What happens to those who fail achieving perfection? Eternal death. We call it damnation. Why do I pray? Why do I preach? Why do I read the Bible? Why do I keep going to church? Because I must do this or else. Do you hear how the law even echoes? Or else. That's the law. Here's ultimate tragedy concerning the law. The ultimate tragedy concerning the law is after years of duty driven by guilt and fear, love for God is lost. We may sing Jesus paid it all, but down deep in my heart, it sure feels like I did it all. Man, I did it all. And what happens is I start realizing God's love is conditional. It becomes conditional. And I'm telling you, conditional love is no love at all. As long as I do my duty, sure, he loves me, but what if I don't? What if I don't? What if I quit? I remember quitting church about 23 years old. Gave it up. I was exhausted. That ladder gets exhausting. What, what if uh, 
what if I get really tired as a disciple? Does God get tired of me? I wonder, is this why so many people feel like they have too little butter to spread over so much bread? It's funny, I was listening to the radio yesterday as coming in to practice my sermon. And there is on the sports station, there's this new commercial about drunk driving. And the person says, some of you listening probably have engaged in this. As much as we've tried to stop you from this, you people keep driving drunk. They keep killing people on the road. And we have to stop this. And as sponsors, Anheuser-Busch Company, here's what we say to you. If you're going to keep drinking and driving, this butt is no longer for you. And then the commercial ended. <laughs> like that's going to stop them from drinking. Oh boy, way to go. That's the problem with threats. They don't work after a while. Get tired of it. Well, there is a second approach. There's a second approach, and this is dangerous. This is going to be very dangerous as we discuss this. Because the law is easy to talk about. Because you resonate to it. Your flesh does. You no good, lazy, guilty sinners. See? Oh, what do you want me to do? Here's the grace doesn't talk like that. Second approach is called the work of grace. Grace gives life and joy because it achieves the right motives from the heart. Grace says something to me that makes no sense whatsoever to the natural man. It says, and I'll get a load of this, when we believe, we are made perfect. Hmm. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he has made him to be sin for us, meaning Jesus died on the cross, the one who knew no sin, he didn't deserve to die on the cross. Why? So that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. So why do you need to be perfect when you've already arrived at perfection? You're made perfect. Don't you believe it's done? 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 Wow, salvation is finished. And so when I sing Jesus paid it all, faith recognizes it's done. That is so hard for people to believe. It really is. And I believe it is here, marinating on this reality where grace really starts catching hold. You've got to say, I'm done. And many of us need to stay here for months. No, I, I'm going to say years. You need to just stop here for years because your heart, when it finally gets it, its response is, it's really? Really? When your heart understands God's love and grace, you're baffled. The mind is baffled and your heart is set aflame. And my question for you is, have you ever been baffled by God? Like really bewildered. There needs, and I'm going to start this new theology called the, Theology of Bewilderment. needs to start there. It occurs when your deepest, darkest self, your deepest, darkest self, who you really know yourself to be, when you look at yourself in the morning, it comes face to face with God's love, and it breaks you. And you say, that, that doesn't make sense. That's right. That's right. I want to show you a verse that does not make sense to me. Remember the first time I read this? This is, this is my theology of bewilderment passage. It's in the book of Hosea. 
Hosea chapter 2. Now you've got, I'm going I'm to tell you, this is a troubling passage, but it's in the, it's in the Bible. Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 7, it's talking about this guy Hosea, and he had to go marry this lady because God knew she'd go prostitute herself. And uh, she, it's, a, it's a metaphor of God's people with God. And chapter 2, verse 7, talks about this lady. This is Hosea is right after Daniel. I just want you, I'm going to take a second. I want you to look at these words. Okay, so verse 7 says, She shall, shall pursue her lovers. So Hosea's wife shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it is better for me than, than, than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. Here's what he's saying. Because she's so wicked, I'm going to take everything away from her. Because she's so wicked, I'm going to embarrass and humiliate her in front of all of her lovers. Why? So I, she can finally be mine. This means is God, even in the lowest depth of our love, he's the only one that loves us. God loves me in spite of everything. This to me makes, to my natural self, makes no sense. I once heard this story about a reformed camp counselor for rotten kids. Work with bad kids, really bad kids. And one of his kids ran away for the third time. He hitchhiked home, got back with his old gang, engaged in the same bad behavior, and he, sure enough, the police caught him. I mean, this was the third time. Three strikes, he should be out. And so for this camp, the punishment, if you do the th third time, it's called the box. It's a three-by-three three cell that you stand in, has a window up top, but you, you can barely sit, and you have to stay in there eight hours a day for a whole week. And I guess it's horrible. Some students were known to lose their mind and go stir crazy in this box. Well, the counselor said to his student, I'll serve your sentence. The student said, no, 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 why? I I'm the one that did it, I deserve it. And the counselor said, yeah, I'll do it, I'll, I'll serve your sentence. It's called grace. And while I'm serving your sentence in this box, I want you to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 the whole time. Needless to say, the kid never ran away again. Because bewilderment got him. And what happens, bewilderness, when it sets into your heart, it begins building the rest of your life on love. I love this one who died for me. Romans 5.5 5 says, The love of God is shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit who's given unto us. Grace is in you in love. Ephesians 3, 17 and 19, Paul says, we need to be rooted in Christ where love is the beginning. It's rooted and grown in love. Love is to be the foundation of the heart. And I would say, dear Christian, if you really have experienced soul-saving bewilderment, you fall in love. You fall in love. And in your love, you're finally made perfect. So you're done 
You're done trying. You're done trying to achieve, and it goes forever. Some of you are like, wait a second, wait a second. Hold on. Don't I have to do anything? Don't I have to do anything? To me, the answer is it depends on why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? To please grandma? A cranky old pastor, a deacon who counts attendance? Is that why you do it? Stop it. Go home. You don't have to do anything anymore. But if you really can't believe it, I'm just saying if you really are bewildered, you would, why wouldn't you want to follow the one who loved you? Why is it even an argument? You get to exalt the one you love, the one who saved you from the box. I want everyone to know him. In fact, I feel like a debtor to those who don't know him. They don't know who they're missing. I want to form habits to help me display him more in my life. So my duty is I get to and my habits are I want to. Even though I still carry around this hungry, heavy flesh, it's different. I want to be trained in order to display him more. So the reason I do it, grace allows me to set habits so it's my choice. It's from the inside. It's from love. What if I mess up? What if I'm not the on-fire guy that I once was? We need to deal with this whole statement of on-fire. What if I'm not the on-fire guy that I once was? Can I be honest with you? Who cares? Seriously, who really cares? Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Or do you just want this feeling of being on fire? And if you just want this feeling of being on fire, then that's really self-love. That's not love for Christ. Who are you proving that you're on fire to? It's kind of like instead of doing your duty so people won't think you're bad, you actually want to be on fire so people will think you're good. That's not love. I really, I don't think, I don't care if you're on fire or not. I know, I know a pastor's not supposed to say that. But I don't care. Because. I don't care if you think I'm on fire or not. Because. I am no longer scared of condemnation, for perfect love drives out fear. In fact, as one man writes, those who have the deepest appreciation of grace do not continue to sin. Moreover, fear produces the obedience of slave. Love engenders the obedience of sons. Let me say that again. Those who have the deepest appreciation of grace, that's theology of bewilderment, do not continue to sin. Moreover, fear produces the obedience of slaves. Love engenders the obedience of sons. That sort of person will thrive. I want to be that guy. So meanwhile, what do we do? Meanwhile, look at verse 13 of Titus again. It says, we, we wait. We wait. Waiting is another phrase we believe by faith. And we wait looking for the one who loved us, and that's called hope. I mean, can you imagine when Jesus finally comes back? I can't. I can't imagine it. Some of you have quit imagining that. 
You've quit imagining because you got tired of working while you wait. That's why people quit imagining. You place too much false hope in the past over silly things like blood moons, 88 reasons for the rapture, 1988, and Jack Van Empey prognostications, and he still hasn't come. And so you wonder, is he ever coming? Because I'm really getting tired of working while I wait. Then you're not really in love. Some prophecy buffs are prophecy buffs because they can't wait to be done working. Look what Titus says in verse 14. This is amazing. Who gave himself us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He, um, he redeemed us. He bought us. The redeem means he bought us back. That means he paid the price to ransom our freedom. So if he bought us, when I think of hope, you've got to think of it like this. If he bought us, he ain't going to forget about us, is he? If he paid everything he had to buy you, don't you think he still thinks about you? Don't you think he can't wait to come and get you? The thing I buy, I can't wait to, like I bought a Christmas gift for somebody. I can't wait for Christmas so they can open. Jesus bought us. Don't you think he can't wait to have us finally? Jesus says in John 14, 3, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back. So... I can be with you where I am. If he bought us, he won't forget us. Our problem is we live on a temporal, emotional roller coaster I talked about at the beginning, but God's eternal, and in his time frame, it's soon. It's really soon. Really soon. So while you wait for him, I would just give two recommendations. It has this idea of zealousness. Drink up. To be zealous, you've got to drink up grace. Just drink up. Live your life in grace-filled bewilderment. Some of you have never been bewildered. That's why you're so cranky and tired. You've gotten used to salvation. It's like an old shoe. Your redemption causes you to yawn. I don't think there's a deeper sin than that. And maybe this is the curse of second-generation Christians. You really think you did God an enormous favor by being born. You have lost bewilderness. If you've never really wondered, I'm, I'm telling you, then you don't understand grace. Bewildered people then start doing good. That's what it says, zealous, that you're just bubbling and it comes out of you. Zealous, they just do good and they can't help it. Zealous means to bubble. And by good, it's living Micah. God really wants you to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Love mercy, do justly, walk humbly. That's good works. Do justly means treat everyone with justice, forgive when you're hurt, and be humble. Or, or are you still trying to be perfect while you wait? And I'm truly sorry for you. I'm really sorry for you. I used to be... I used to be scared of people that, I used to be like, oh boy, I'm not as perfect as them. I've come to the realization, if you are striving to be good and trying to prove to everybody how on fire you are, I'm really sorry for you. Because you don't know how good and beautiful the waterfall is. How good it tastes to drink right from it. I, I think some of you know, I've told you, I've got a crazy brother. I, I really do. He's nuts. He's crazy. 
And one time he decided to go up into the mountains in Tennessee and he wanted to fast for seven days. No food and no water. He just walked around the mountains, slept in the woods. He's weird, I know. So on the seventh day, he started getting really thirsty. He was hungry, but he started getting really thirsty to the point where he was hallucinating. And he was so thirsty, he said he saw this lake and he dove in and he just dove in and just started gulping water while he's in the water. And he said, and in a way my brother talks, he goes, Chris, I'm telling you, he says it like this, that was the best water I've ever had in my life. Oh, it was so good. Because he was enjoying something that's there, just drink it. Why do you refrain from it, try to fast and prove you're holy? Just drink. Drink from it. Because you are saved by grace. That, that is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. It's great. 